thank you for that, that uh, very powerful and applicable worship song for a lot of people in a lot of different situations, and we can be blessed, and I sense that many of you were blessed through uh, the rendering of that worship song, so uh, thank you for that. This morning we're going to be talking about um, worship again, corporate worship, us together. And just as you, you could listen to that same song on um, the radio, you know, on your phone, and it would be, God can use that to minister to you. But there's a certain dynamic you get from being together with God's people when his spirit is with us. And we know he's here when two or more are gathered in his name. He is manifestly present in that gathering more so in a special way. It's what he says than when you're by yourself. So it's, it's good to be together for worship, And that's what we're going to be talking about. This whole book of Malachi, as we've been going through it, is about worship, acceptable worship. And I want to say that this art of marriage time is something that will be beneficial to all of us. It doesn't matter the length of your marriage. We don't ever get past uh, needing some, some encouragement in this area. So I, I want to say I encourage you to come and be a part of this, to invest some time in this. This morning's text out of Malachi 2, uh, we're going to look at verses 10 through 16, and it's dealing with this very issue. Marriage as it relates to corporate worship. Now that's something most of us don't think about. We don't think about marriage having our marriage, my marriage, having an impact on what goes on out here. But according to the word of God, it does. So as we look at this text, I want you to prayerfully engage with God in this important topic and this idea of your role in worship. So if you have your copy of God's Word available, I encourage you, if you're able and willing to stand, to do so in honor of the reading of the Word. And I will begin reading with verse 10 in chapter 2 of Malachi. That is the last book of the Old Testament. And I'll be reading through verse 16. The prophet says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithful, faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Father, we ask a blessing upon this reading of your word and ask now that you would illuminate our hearts and give us understanding that we may accept your binding precepts in this very important issue of marriage as it relates to worship. And Father, we just ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at the spiritual leaders and the rebuke that God was giving to them. In this section, Malachi puts the focus back on the people. And he's going to be talking about how the people are profaning, again, the covenant, their worship as this nation that has been set apart to honor God and they're failing to do so in various ways and in this way we're going to look at three things they're not first of all understanding that they have responsibility to one another as members of the covenant community that's the first part of this and then he deals with two aspects of marriage specifically and the first is marriages that are with idolaters what we would call unequally yoked marriages and then he deals lastly with the issue of divorce in the context of believers remember this is all in the context of covenant community. Malachi is speaking to the church. Well, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. The principle for us is it's speaking to the church. So keep that in mind. So he's, he's turned his attention and back to the people, and he starts off with this idea. It's more than an idea, but it's a principle that as a member as a Israelite they are members of the covenant community but they have responsibilities to each other it's not just about them has have we not all one father has not the one God created us so what he's saying here is that what you do as a member of a Christian church 
impacts the other members of this church. We are not islands to ourselves. Now, I do want to make one note. This might not even catch your attention, but a lot of people take, and this is why it's important to take the Bible in context. Some people will take this verse out of context, and they use it as a call to universalism. Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Yes, God has created every human person, saved or unsaved. The result of God's creation. His act as creator does not make them automatically members of the covenant community. That is by faith in Christ when you realize that you've sinned against said creator and you repented of your sins and through faith have trusted in the shed blood of Jesus on your behalf. So this is not a call to universalism. Malachi is talking to believers. And in that context, as believers, we all have the same father. We are brothers and sisters. We have family relationship and family responsibility. What does this mean? Well, you know, we're doing a tutoring ministry. And now, not now when we say, like, I was thinking about the words that were set up here. Not all of the individuals in, that come to this tutoring ministry come from broken homes. That we've got some good kids. We've got some of our own church kids coming here. We try not to make a distinction between them. So when we, you say something like, well, so, you know, these, and we're speaking generally that there's issues and needs, not every single one of these kids has those same issues, but they're a part of the group. How does that impact them? Well, uh, I wasn't in there this past Wednesday, but I understand that uh, some issues going on with some of the kids, and uh, they lost some of their rec time. Now, who lost their rec time? Well, the whole group. Were, were Every one of those 56 or 60 kids acting up, did they do something to deserve loss of the rec time? No. Probably a handful. That's how life works sometimes. Some of y'all have been in the, the, the Army and the Marine Corps. You get one goof up in a, in a Marine Corps, who, who, who generally gets punished for it? Doesn't the whole squad and that's a little bit of incentive to, for the squad then to go to said goof up and say, hey, we're going to have a little come to Jesus meeting here. We're going to get some things straightened out. We're tired of this happening to us. But there's a sense of responsibility that you just don't do your own thing and it doesn't have any impact on anybody else. Members of a Christian church have responsibilities. One of the, the, the best accounts in the Old Testament that illustrates this, I think, is found in the seventh chapter of Joshua. You don't have to turn to it right now, but I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. Uh, Achan was a member of the covenant community. He had benefited from the blessings of being part of that community for years. And it had been supernaturally protected by God, provided for. 
And yet when it came time to enter Jericho, and God had clearly said, everything is under the ban. It is devoted entirely to destruction, with the exception of Rahab and her family, because of an earlier incidence of her faith. But everything was under the ban. Achan decided he saw some goodies, and so he took them home. He took them to his tent. He dug a hole and buried them. And the very next campaign... Now, other people didn't know about this. So they're going to the next town that God has told them to, to, to destroy Ai. And the Israelites end up getting defeated. 36 people died because of one man's sin. There was sin in the camp. Sin does not happen in a vacuum. It affects other people. And we, as members of a covenant community, a church where we have covenanted together, we have responsibilities to one another. If we're aware of something in another person's life, it's, it's not necessarily your, your job to come bring it to the pastor, but you can say something about it in love, speaking the truth in love, because we have responsibilities one to another. We're to encourage each other. We're to pray for each other. We're good with that. Hey, we're also to hold each other accountable. We're not so good with that one. But it impacts all of us. And that's what he's saying. It's important. So that's the general. Then he's going to get into the specifics. And he's going to deal with these two issues of marriage and divorce. And this is a difficult passage I'm committed to preaching the truth. I want to do it with as much grace as possible. But there are some things that we need to hear as members of a covenant community. And we need to understand that the word of God has binding precepts. That means they actually have impact on us. These are things that we are to allow to govern our lives. These aren't suggestions. These are God's commands which he has not revoked. The parallels are in the New Testament and they continue to be binding upon us. We will ignore them or transgress them at our peril. They are his binding precepts. The first one... It's found in verses 11 and 12 of Malachi. And because marriage is in a covenant relationship, believers are not to marry unbelievers. Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah. Now note that. He says Judah twice. He doesn't say individuals. Not everyone was doing this, but he's using Judah as a blanket term for the whole nation. Again, 
The actions of the individuals will have an impact on the whole group. So he's saying Judah has been faithless, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How did he do that? He's married the daughter of a foreign god. So verse 12, you see what they were doing is they're still going through the worship. They're still coming to the tabernacle. They're still offering their sacrifices. And the prophet says, May the Lord cut off, discard from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. So if he's saying if you're having these marriages with foreign women, unbelievers, pagans, and then you're still coming to church and going through the motions, forget about God honoring your sacrifice. Not going to happen. This is serious business. And it has to do with being unequally yoked. Now remember, these were people that were under the law. They knew the law. I'm going to throw out several scriptures. We're not going to turn to these. But this practice was expressly forbidden. Exodus 34, 6, Deuteronomy 7, 2. That was in the law, and it was warned against time and time again. Joshua 23, verses 12 and 13. 1 Kings 11, 2. Ezra 9, verse 2. Time and time again after God had said, Hey, this is, you're my people. You're to marry within the covenant. You are not to marry outside the covenant with pagans. Expressly, no wiggle room. Don't do it. Why? Exodus 34, 14 tells us that God is jealous. He's a jealous God. And he's jealous for the hearts and the affections of his people. And he knew and he even told them the reasons. If you marry unbelievers, they will draw your heart away from me. Don't do it. You know how Solomon's end came to be? One of the, well, the wisest man. What was responsible for his downfall? Foreign women. I'm not talking about foreign as in just a different country. I mean, foreign here is not, you know, being married to somebody from Alabama. That's probably not a good idea, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a belief system. He's talking about having a like faith. That's what's under discussion here. He's prohibiting the marriage of one of his people to a member of, of a different belief system, not a different ethnicity. That's where the New Testament current day practice comes in. There are people who use or attempt to use certain passages in the Bible to say that it is wrong, biblically wrong, for one ethnicity to marry another ethnicity. That is not in the Bible. There is no biblical support for that whatsoever. It's not there. So when we say he's against mixed races, we've got to 
make a few distinctions. First, there's only one race of people. One. It's called humans. There are no different races. We use race in that sense as a social construct, but there's no difference between Asians, Jewish people, African-American people. We're human. Acts 17, 26, from one blood, God created us. And there's nothing wrong with tribes and tongues and ethnicities. Revelation 7, 9 says that in heaven there's going to be, as part of the worship, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they're all going to be praising and worshiping God, if they are believers. So, bottom line, just cut to the chase, it is not sin for a white person to marry a black person. Regardless of what you may have been taught, there is no biblical foundation for that at all. If, I mean, it's amazing because some people would rather their child marry an unbeliever of the same ethnicity who will draw them away from God and say this is wrong to marry a black person. That's called prejudice and it's a sin and it's an abomination in the sight of God. Now, that might not be the preference, but it's not a sin. There are cultural issues, sure. There are some serious issues do you want to look into before you go down that road with how people are going to respond to that? Yes. But there's some bigotry that goes on in this county. I've been told years ago, I don't know if it still exists, but in an ordination for a pastor, I was told once that they was asked, would you officiate? A marriage between a white person and a black person. And if the answer was yes, they wouldn't ordain them to the gospel ministry. That's wrong. If they are believers, and if there is a committed relationship. Now, you know what the problem is? What we see mostly in this county is far, far from that. Okay, and that... That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about biblical union for those who have surrendered their lives to Christ and are committed to living in marital fidelity with a spouse to the honor and glory of God. We need to do a little heart check there. And the second thing, and this I want us to say for our young people. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. This is a passage talking about not being unequally yoked. What has light in common with darkness? Answer nothing. This is, I will meet with anyone who wants to discuss me officiating their wedding. 
This comes up in the very first introductory session. I asked them to share their salvation story, each of them. Because if one of them is not married, and the other one is, I will not officiate that marriage. I am not called to marry unbelievers with believers. It's expressly forbidden. Did I say that wrong? What did I say? I saw some looks. Huh? I won't marry? Oh, if, oh, oh I mean, if, if one is an unbeliever, thing, I mean, I got some looks. I'm like, wow, wait a minute. I, I don't know what I said, but I said something. Okay. I, I will not marry a believer knowingly with an unbeliever because that is expressly forbidden in Scripture. But that's where I start. Do you have a salvation story? And then if one of them says no, then I share the gospel. And that's an opportunity. But this is serious. So young people, you know, there's a lot of things you need to pray about in life. You've got a lot of decisions. This is not something you need to pray about. There's no need to pray about this. God has said it clearly. Don't. Marry an unbeliever. So where does that start? Don't even date one. Don't start. Don't go down that road. You need to find a Christian young person and I, of the opposite sex. Someone who's committed to God. They have a relationship with Jesus. And that's a big part of their life. Yes, there are stories, and some are here in this church where you can share that I was married to an unbeliever. Yeah, I shouldn't have, but by the grace of God, God saved my spouse years later. Yes, that happens. That is not God's design. So we need to start there. Only date believers. Now, the second aspect of this that Malachi gets into is about divorce. Now what was going on here is that some of these guys were actually divorcing their wives of their youth so they could marry then the pagan women. So they were doing double sin. But he said this second thing you do, you're, you're crying, you're weeping, you're, you're coming to the altar and he's not favoring you. Well, there's a reason for that, because you're being faithless to the covenant. He's calling them hypocrites. He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They're saying, but why? Why does he not? Why doesn't God bless us? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. He's calling them hypocrites on this issue. And then he goes through some stuff. And in verse 15, if, especially if you have the King James or the New American Standard, you will see a marked difference in the wording of that portion. The Hebrew is fairly difficult. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm just reading what people say. It's fairly difficult to a literal interpretation, but the point is the same. 
And that is divorce is not God's design. Go back to the garden, Genesis 2.24, he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall cleave together and become one flesh. That's the design. In Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus is talking, and he says, when someone asked, well, the lawyers asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Jesus reinforcing that. Why, why is this so important? And remember, this is in the context of believers. I want you to actually turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This is, and it's used, this passage is used in a lot of uh, wedding ceremonies. Um, and it's the relationships between wives and husbands and the different roles. All I want to read uh, this morning, I want you to focus your attention on, is verse 31 and 32. Again, we see, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That just keeps coming up. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A marriage relationship is a human relationship that most closely, closely resembles the union between a believer and his Lord. We are the bride of Christ. Would Jesus divorce his bride? No. That is God's design. There's Just as a husband has let nothing come between him and his wife, there is nothing to come between a believer and his Lord. Now, what happens, again, believers, when they divorce, they are actually demonstrating the breaking of a covenant. A covenant is not designed to be broken. That's why it's so detrimental. And then you see the why did he make them one, verse 15, with a portion of the Spirit and in your union? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. When a couple divorces, the whole family is thrown into disarray. There are no winners. Study after study shows the detrimental, the negative impact that divorce has on children. We can say, counselors can say they're resilient, they'll bounce back, they'll be okay. They're not okay. Divorce hurts people. Now, I want to make an important note, and some of this has been hard to say and maybe hard to hear, and I know there's many divorced families within this congregation, but note this. In those texts, especially verses 15 and 16, 16, in the, in the Hebrews translated that God hates divorce. 
It does not say that he hates divorced people. He does not like the action of divorce because of what it does to his people. That is the focus. And you go back to the Matthew passage that, you know, the people come back and they, 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 they come here. You know, there's, there was rationalization here. Uh, there's rationalization in, in, in Matthew 19 and then again with Paul and the Corinthians. But when Jesus said that in Matthew 19, the lawyer said, well, then why did, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And under the law in Deuteronomy 24, there is stipulations for divorce. But Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Again, God's design is primary here. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, this is a concession. It's not an automatic. When there is marital infidelity, the offended party has a means to exit the marriage, marriage union based on what Jesus says here. But it's not all, it doesn't have to happen. Let me just say this. God's heart is for reconciliation. That's God's heart. And I have said this in counseling. I will say it publicly here. There is no marriage. I want you to hear all of this. There is no marriage between two believers, crucial, that cannot be put back together if both parties, again crucial, are willing to repent of the sin wherever it lies, sometimes that's with one party. And if that party is not willing to repent, it's not going to happen. But there is no marriage between two believers who are willing to repent where necessary that God can't fix. If you don't believe that, you're saying, my marriage is so messed up, God can't even fix this. That's a bold statement. That's a very bold statement. And one I think you'll have no support for. Again, a hard message. Because I know we have many divorced families in our congregation. Sometimes, sometimes, there aren't any options depending on who did what and was not willing to repent of said actions. And there are legitimate arenas for divorce. But that should not be the design. And then Paul does mention... And in 1 Corinthians, I'll briefly hit this. It's 1 Corinthians 7. This was at Corinth. You had a bunch of pagans, 
a bunch of pagans when the gospel came there, and a lot of them got saved, came to know Christ, one of them in a marriage. Now you've got a believer married to an unbeliever. And so Paul gives some instruction there that, that Jesus didn't give because it wasn't necessary then. Because at that point when Jesus is talking, it's only Israel and they're still in the covenant community. Now you've got a different situation. So Paul addresses that and he says, hey, if this happens, and we have this, it can happen now. Two people get married and later on one of them becomes a Christian, comes to faith in Christ. The other one doesn't. Paul says, if you're the believer, you cannot divorce the unbeliever. Not an option for you. If the unbeliever says, hey, I didn't sign up for this Jesus stuff. This is weird. I'm, I'm living with a different person now. Yes, you are, because in Christ, we're new creations. Paul says, if that happens, the unbeliever is free to go. But the believer's 